Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thank you for tuning in as we hopefully enlighten you, which is the reason you listen. It's all about changing the way you view the world. Isn't that right? I mean, the only reason you would dedicate 40, 50 minutes is to hopefully get something from it and become a better human afterwards. Well, that is what today is all about. In an age of misinformation, in an age of fake news, where we're constantly worrying or discussing things like, is climate change real? Should we vaccinate our children? What is the actual size of the inauguration crowds? People tend to think that individual psychology is what's causing that. Well, in this week's episode, we talk to a brilliant expert about why false beliefs spread. And what you will come to find out is that it's primarily due to social reasons, social factors. We can never escape the fact that we are tribal creatures and above almost everything, we will do what our tribe says, what's good for the tribe and what keeps us just like everyone else. But just like anything, when we understand why something's happening, I think it's imperative that we then ask ourselves, how can I fix it and how can I get better? And that's what we do on this show. This week, we are interviewing James Owen Weatherall. 
Of course, he goes by Jim. And Jim is a physicist, philosopher, and mathematician. He holds graduate degrees from Harvard, the Stevens Institute of Technology, and the University of California, Irvine, where he is presently an assistant professor of logic and philosophy of science. His newest book is called The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread. Such a perfect topic for our show. Absolutely something that I know you're going to dig your claws into. Let us know what you think. And also, more than letting us know what you think, let us know that you enjoy it by supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. In all honesty, we haven't gotten the response we thought, we hoped for. But hey, we realize that it takes time. So I also want to ask, look, if you've decided you are not going to support us, maybe you'll take a minute Email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and tell us why not so we can help fix that. Part of our efforts to be better to connect with you more is we are looking at bringing on a third member, finally expanding our team so somebody can focus on just listening to you and improving the show. So that is also what some support at Patreon will help us go to do. Patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And we can bring you more amazing episodes like the one we have here. So I'm going to turn it over to Jim Weatherall as we talk about the misinformation age, how false beliefs spread. Enjoy. Today we have people who are, you know, we have these anti-vaxxers or pro-viruses as I like to call them, right? You have your climate change deniers. You have people who say germs aren't real. These are people who are seemingly intelligent. They're out there. Are we moving backwards as an intellectual society? Are we actually digressing when it comes to our ability to think logically? Uh, well, no, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that that's, uh, happening. I do think though that, uh, look, the, the basic problem is that we have an enormous proliferation of sources of information and the kinds of uh, heuristics that we've used. I mean, the, the, like the ways in which we've evaluated sources of information in the past um, are increasingly ineffective in the uh, information environment that we're living in now. I mean, so the way we get information now uh, is sort of complicated in new kinds of ways. And we need to develop, you know, even, you know, smart people, um, uh, well-educated people uh, need to develop new ways of evaluating what's nonsense, what's reliable, what's true, and what's false, you know, basically on the internet. Mm. What's the primary way we used to get information that was fairly reliable as compared to today? What are those kind of differentiators amongst the things that were reliable of yesterday and are no longer there? So I actually I want to I want to resist that way of asking the question. Great, uh, because I don't think that it's true that somehow in the past uh, our ways of getting information were simply reliable, um, and our our ways of getting information now are not reliable. Um, I think that rather what's happened is um, over time we've gotten new ways of getting information, and as we get new ways of getting information. Uh, new ways of misleading us become possible. And what happens over time is we learn to, to see those ways of misleading us. 
and uh, to get better at identifying them and dealing with them and sorting fact from fiction. I mean, just think about old tobacco ads, right? You know, nine out of 10 cigarette, nine out of 10 doctors recommend that you smoke Chesterfields, <laughs> right? No one nowadays looks at that ad and says, cigarettes must be safe if doctors say you should smoke them. Um, but back then they were effective. And so what, I, what I'm trying to, to point out at what's changing is that new ways of influencing or even manipulating our beliefs are appearing and we don't know how to deal with them yet. I think 20 years from now, we're going to look back on you know, the kinds of, of memes and infographics and fake news stories that seem to be swaying public opinion now and think, how could people be so easily misled in the same way that we look back at these Chesterfield ads and um, think, you know, this is this is so obviously gimmicky. It's obviously manipulative. Interesting. So would you actually say, going back to my first question, that we are, in fact, getting more either discerning or enlightened or uh, really moving in the right direction due to the 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 ease of information dissemination? However, we just haven't caught up to these new ways yet. Is there actually a, a, a silver lining here? Uh, well, I'm not sure there's a silver lining. So the way that I think about <laughs> it, this is I'm going to borrow a, a metaphor from a, another philosopher of science. His name is um, uh, Bennett Holman. He's at Yonsei University in, in South Korea, which is that what we're facing is a kind of arms race. And so really the situation is you have on the one hand groups either for their own internal reasons that are sort of inscrutable um, or because they have clear political or economic motivations, have an interest in shaping public opinion about something. And they're looking for new strategies to do that, right? You can go back and read in the 1920s and 1930s, the beginning of the um, sort of public relations industry, books written by these, these giants in the field that explained you know, so for instance, I, I keep mentioning the, these tobacco ads, but Edward Bernays, who wrote the book Propaganda, um, you know, he, he originally worked for the U.S. government during World War One, developing wartime propaganda methods and then helped create the industry of public relations. In his book Propaganda, he says, look, if you want to convince people of things, tell them that authorities believe those things. Tell them their priest believes it. Tell them their doctor believes it. Uh, tell them police believe it. Okay, and so, you know, that's what industry did, and it worked for a while. It's less effective now, or at least it's effective in somewhat different ways. But it's, it's as we become more sophisticated, uh, the people who are trying to influence our beliefs also become more sophisticated. And so uh, it's not as if, you know, there's a, a, an end result here where we know how to you know, perfectly sort fact from fiction and we aren't misled by propaganda or, or uh, fake news or stuff like that. Rather, it's that we need to recognize that we have to keep, keep evolving and keep uh, updating our um, uh, abilities and, and, and methods and heuristics to do this kind of work. I love that. I, I completely agree. And honestly, that is why I, I was so excited to have you on because one of the things I enjoy about today's technology and really my life is this ability to podcast and connect directly with people that I personally um, deem knowledgeable, honest, uh, able to further my my thinking. And now I might get that wrong. And there are people who are good at marketing themselves, etc. So I'm not saying the way I do it is right. But 
at least I have a shot at reaching directly to somebody like you and, and trying to get the most raw, real information. I want to talk about this idea of the people who spread the false information and the, and like you just said, the propaganda. But before we do that, I want to highlight for those listening really who you are, because look, I've read a lot of CVs. I've read a lot of bios in my life and I don't know half of the stuff that's on yours. And I'm fascinated by it. Let me give an example, right? So uh, you, you are a professor of logic and philosophy of science at UC Irvine. What yep. does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, UC Irvine is a little bit uh, unusual. We have um, uh, two, and, and by some counting, maybe even three philosophy departments uh, on, on campus, or you know, three different groups that, that do stuff that would happen in a, a, a normal philosophy department at another university. Um, and the department that I'm in is in the School of Social Sciences, uh, and what we do is we work on issues in sort of at the foundations of natural and social sciences. And so um, a lot of my work has been on issues in the mathematical and conceptual foundations of physics. Um, but I've also you know, worked on issues in the uh, mathematical foundations of economics and then issues in you know, what's, get, what's called general philosophy of science, which includes you know, on the one hand, how scientific theories work, what makes a good scientific theory, what scientific explanation, what's the nature of the evidence for our scientific theories, and then also how should science um, interact with policymaking, the public, uh, journalism, things like that. You also are a physicist, a mathematician, and a philosopher. Like, to me, those things sound like three different humans. Like, how can you be all of those things, or, or at least as you are highly educated in them. I mean, have you just been in school, higher education for like 20 years or how does this work? Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, would say that I have, uh, broad interests. I wasn't, I wasn't in school for all that long. I, I think I is, uh, was, was out of grad school by the time I was 28. Uh, so, okay. maybe that's, yeah, that's a know. while. Uh, it's a while, but it's 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 not so much longer than a normal grad student. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so I have always been interested in what I think of as the mathematical foundations of physics, but that has evolved into interest in history of physics and public understanding of physics. And you know, I I have had the great opportunity to to talk to and meet. Uh, lots of smart and interesting people. And then I get interested in what they're interested in. And I try to work on it a little bit and uh, learn about it. So would you say at its core, kind of physics is what drives everything else in your realm of knowledge and discovery? Well, that was how it started. Okay. Uh, but then, you know, at, at some point, um, I would say that I'm, I'm just as interested in uh, issues in general, philosophy of science, you know, things related to evidence and um, belief and now the stuff about um, the social aspects of belief, you know, my, my interests have sort of shifted and evolved and, and come back to where they started and then evolved again uh, over time. This week's episode is brought to you by Pedal. For a lot of us, our relationship with credit cards is complicated. Having a credit card can feel like the ultimate freedom 
but they can also get you into a lot of financial trouble. I remember how hard it was when I was first establishing credit. There were all these things that I had to look out for that I really didn't know about, like interest charges, fees, low credit limits, you name it. But I want to tell you about a new kind of credit card company called Pedal, and it may change the way you think about credit. Pedal is a new credit card company that wants to help you succeed financially. Their mobile app is designed to help you spend responsibly, which is especially great if you're just starting to build credit. With Pedal, you can qualify for higher limits, but that doesn't mean you should always spend to that limit. Pedal's app lets you track your credit card spending against your own personal budget. Pedal wants to help you build your credit score. That's why they reward you with more cash back when you pay on time. Earn 1% cash back right away and 1.5% cash back when you make 12 on-time monthly payments. Pedal is partnered with WebBank member FDIC. WebBank issues the Pedal Visa card. So listen up. It's about time there is a smarter, more modern credit card company that wants to help you succeed financially. Go to pedalcard.com smart today to find out more. That's pedal with a T, pedal, P-E-T-A-L, card.com slash smart. One more time, pedalcard.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. As they tend to do for people who are curious, and, and that's what I love. I wanted to ask you first, as a professor of logic, what are the primary things you try to teach your your students? I mean, what are the most basic things that need to be understood in order to go through this course or go through the courses in your in your curriculum, if you will? Yeah, well, so um, in fact, uh, I haven't taught a logic course since maybe 2010. Okay. So that's not, most of the teaching that I'm doing is not on logic per se, but on, on other issues in philosophy of science. Mm, okay. Uh, but w- one of the things, you know, so in sort of the big undergrad classes that I, I teach, what I try to uh, really drive home is maybe three separate issues or related issues, but, you know, I think of them as, as distinct. Uh, one of them is that scientific methods, the sorts of things that we're using, uh, that, you know, that we're doing when we do science uh, are really the, the best methods we have to answer the sorts of questions that we care about. We care about both for making decisions in our ordinary life, um, but also, you know, for answering the big old philosophical questions. You know, and so, for instance, uh, I teach a course called The Good Life, where we start by reading uh, a whole bunch of ancient Greek philosophers who wrote on what the nature of a good life is, um, extract from them a number of what are essentially empirical claims, claims about, you know, under what circumstances people are going to be most happy and, and less anxious and, you know, sort of, um, uh, generally feel good. And then we turn to the literature in the social sciences and um, in biology and ask, you know, how do those empirical predictions fare? Um, so that's that's one one part of the story. Another thing that I try to emphasize is uh, that when you're reading scientific studies, you need to be very careful about a few different things. One of them is what's sometimes called operationalization. And so suppose you're interested in happiness. Now, happiness isn't something that you just go out and measure. What you go out and measure is, for instance, someone's tendency on a survey to say that they're happy. 
or the levels of certain stress hormones in someone's saliva, or their blood pressure. Now, all of these can be thought of as intermediate, ways of getting at how happy or how anxious or how stressed out someone is, but they don't, they aren't just, you know, direct proxies, right? They, they're at best going to give you part of the story and then only in the presence of a whole lot of other assumptions. And so this is part of what philosophy of science is about, in my view, um, is figuring out how in particular studies, what you've actually measured relates to the thing you were interested in in the first place. And then the last, the last thing that I you know, try to hammer home whenever I teach uh, a large undergraduate class is uh, really about um, the nature of evidence and statistical methodology. So basically, look, evidence, especially in the uh, human sciences, but even in physics as well, is probabilistic. Some studies are going to show one thing. Some studies are going to show another thing. You have to look at the whole body of evidence that's available. You have to look at what studies were reproducible. You have to look at various precise statistical measures of the data in order to get a clear picture of what's been established. Um, and this really, I think this circles back in an important way on issues related to public understanding of science and how um, journalists and the media and in some cases, propagandists uh, talk about science because it's very easy to get a deeply misleading understanding of what the best current science shows by looking at single studies. And yet, you know, if you go to the newspapers, it's this study suddenly shows that, say, drinking wine is terrible for you or drinking wine is great for you or something like that, right? Whereas, you know, really the situation is more complicated and we have a huge body of, of evidence weighing on this um, that often gets ignored in the way that, that people talk about or report on science. Let's get into what you just mentioned. This idea that in today's 24-hour news cycle or instantaneous news cycle, every study is out there and there's these salacious headlines and everything like that. But the truth is obviously much more complicated. So much so, in fact, that I find the more information we have, the fewer truths there are. Second, though, is this. For example, there's a podcast called Science Versus, and I got really excited because essentially every episode they take a topic that's highly debatable and they say, what, where does the science come out? And I listened to a bunch and very quickly I realized every single episode ends like this. Well, the science is mixed. Every single one. So like, they almost do not uncover anything that we can hang our hat on. My question is, well, A, disagree where you will, because you're the one that knows it, but B, how do we operate in a world where there are so few truths? For example, wine is good, wine is bad. Coffee is good, coffee is bad. You should lift weights this way, you should do cardio, you shouldn't do cardio if this. What's the best way for a an individual, just a peon like myself out there in the world, trying to do the best things to, in fact, do the best things? So here, I think, is a place where actually there is a, a silver line, lining. Science doesn't deliver truths in the sort of eternal and unquestionable ultimate sense of truths. What science gives you is evidence that ought to influence what you believe. But science is also a process. And it's a process that involves a lot of disagreement, a lot of criticism, a lot of debate, 
Um, and often a lot of revision as we come up with new and better ways of um, testing hypotheses that we previously accepted or thought were, were established. And so, um, you know, it's never going to be the case that some issue in science is completely settled. And yet, it can be the case that the overwhelming available evidence uh, suggests one thing rather than uh, another. Um, or that there could be no evidence that suggests one hypothesis, one specific hypothesis, um, even though it's you know something that people talk about or entertain or, or take seriously. And so the thing to take away from this is that you shouldn't be, number one, you shouldn't be, think that when, when, when scientists disagree with one another, that that somehow means that uh, there's something wrong with science or that um, there's uh, no reason to sort of act one way rather than another. No, I mean, scientific disagreement is a, a healthy sign. Um, on the other hand, uh, that doesn't mean that we can't act, right? I mean, it's we should act in accordance with the best evidence we've got at the moment, and we should be trying as hard as we can to get new and better evidence in the future and revise what we do in light of that. Now, it seems to me like in most cases, we don't have a lot of trouble sorting this sort of thing out. There's always a possibility that we'll be wrong. And yet we tend to do the thing that um, you know, we think is best supported by, by the evidence. The issue is that these aspects of science that we've been discussing, you know, things like that scientists sometimes disagree, that you never have complete certainty about anything, uh, can be weaponized. Um, and so there are lots of examples that we talk about in uh, the book, which I guess I should say is co-authored with Kaylin O'Connor, who um, I, I don't think we, we mentioned that at the... Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, well, we, well, you know, we talk about many examples in, in the book where, you know, the science is as settled as science is going to get, right? That you, we haven't, you know, there hasn't been some ultimate truth delivered, but what's happened is a whole lot of evidence has been gathered. There's been a debate among the scientists. A consensus has been reached about what the evidence that we've got so far shows. It clearly recommends certain sorts of policies, uh, and yet, or certain sorts of actions. And yet, um, people who would, uh, whose interests would be harmed by taking those actions try to, to say, well, we don't have certainty yet, or uh, yeah. it's mm -hmm. premature to act. And I just want to sharply distinguish that kind of case from the normal, you know, mess of, of disagreements and, and criticisms and so on that you see in, in healthy science. Hey, Chris, how long have we known each other? I think it's coming up on about 25 years. Do you actually know what I do for my job? Well, first, that would require us still talking to each other. But aside from that, I think something about managing, you manage like projects or people or technology. I actually I have no idea what you do. Sure, sure. I manage teams and I have to build out teams. And you know what? Hiring is hard. It takes forever. You have to go through tons of applications and it's just this huge slog. And that's why I'm pumped to have ZipRecruiter sponsoring the show. So just head over to ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. ZipRecruiter definitely makes hiring easy. It sends your jobs to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, 
ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, and John, you probably already know this, but ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-M-A-R-T-P-E-O-P-L-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to me interviewing someone. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Actually, I was listening to another podcast about climate science and it was talking about how all the way back in like the 60s or 70s, I can't remember, um, it was pretty much known like, yes, humans are causing climate change and it's not a good thing. And there were even the large companies, I believe it was Enron or something that they were actively working to solve the issue. And then when they realized how it was going to negatively impact a lot of the their business, um, you know, their businesses, Essentially, what they did is what you just said is like, look, you can't prove it. And here's one small thing that might cause it not to be true. And then to just harp on that enough to create this almost plausible deniability. Sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. It's a small fraction oftentimes, but sometimes it screams the loudest. Yeah. So um, there's a, a really wonderful book. Uh, by Naomi Oreski and Eric Conway, two historians of science called Merchants of Doubt, uh, that goes through this history in uh, great detail from the tobacco industry in the 1950s through um, the debate over uh, chlorofluorocarbons and ozone depletion and acid rain and transnational pollution and secondhand smoking and all the way up to uh, climate change today and identifies the same strategies being used over and over again uh, to try to uh, undermine collective action in response to evidence. You know, I think tobacco is the, the clearest case of this, in part because a whole bunch of lawsuits in the 1990s uh, led to, through the discovery process, um, basically all of the written documents that the industry produced on the uh, health risks of tobacco use um, through the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and up, up into the early 1990s. And so you can see documentation that tobacco industry scientists knew in the 1950s that there was a link between tobacco use and cancer. You can also see that they knew that there was no evidence that they were going to provide that tobacco was safe or healthy. And the best they could do uh, is so doubt. And they explicitly and self-consciously adopted strategies to try to create the impression of uncertainty or that the science wasn't yet settled um, or to suggest that there was some science that pushed in the opposite direction. You know, and so they would do things like produce uh, pamphlets or newsletters and send them to hundreds of thousands of doctors and politicians and, uh, you know, influencers, you know, the Instagram influencers of, of the 60s, right. uh, saying, you know, well, it was widely reported that if you paint uh, cigarette tar on mice, they get carcinoma. Well, here's a study where if you paint some other thing on a different animal, they get carcinoma at a lower rate. Well, okay. I mean, 
<laughs> and 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 you know the 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 net result uh, was to um, significantly delay regulation of tobacco products. You know, I, I just like how big this delay was, right? So the tobacco industry knew that there was a link between their product and cancer in the 1950s and 1960s. The laws saying that tobacco companies can't advertise to children weren't passed until the 1990s, mm. right? I mean, it, it feels like that's also ancient history, but just there was a 30 year gap between when it was clear that this was a really dangerous product to when any action was taken to even limit accessibility or availability of that product um, to minors. It's quite, it is, it's unbelievable. But I think, and that's, again, let's get into some of the specifics even covered in your book. That's what this is all about, right? It's this age of the ability to uh, just shape a narrative so well. So let's start there. What is it that you cover most in your book about how today specifically, right? 2019, um, misinformation is seemingly everywhere and obviously is playing such a role in our political environment, in the bipartisan nature of not just politics, but beliefs in general, and how it feels like it is splitting us. It is literally fracturing us into separate groups. What is it about today that is causing this seemingly increasing issue? Yeah, so I, I think this is a, a great question. I want to try to... Um, say two things that are sort of not responding to the question, but sort of shifting it a little bit. Right. Uh, one of them is, look, the hallmark of a great liar isn't that you know they're lying all the time, right? A really great liar is someone who you don't know they're lying, right? There's someone who you know, you're convinced by what they're saying. Um, I think the fact that we're aware that there's so much misinformation out there uh, is already a signal that we're getting better at dealing with it, right? Because there's always been misinformation out there. Mm. And there's a growing awareness that this is a problem and we can recognize particular cases of it now. Um, I think that we're better than we were even three years ago at recognizing particular kinds of misinformation and fake news. Um, uh, and so I, that's, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show. Uh, but it's, it doesn't seem to me as if it's quite right to say because we see so much misinformation, therefore, it's a new and worse problem because um, our, our seeing it is sort of a, a sign of, of um, getting better at recognizing it. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say that sort of uh, is about sort of sh shaping just what the question is about, as I see it, you need to think about the history of new media over the last 500 years to really think about, like really understand what's, what's going on. Um, and, uh, the fact is that basically since Gutenberg, uh, you've had new and ever more effective ways of propagating information to a mass audience, right? So books and then newspapers and then, you know, daily newspapers and then, uh, radio and then, um, you know, television and then you know, 24 hour cable television with, you know, a million channels where you can get whatever you want, just the way that you want it. And then of course the internet and not just the internet where people can sort of set up blogs or, or, uh, their own websites, but now social media where anyone has a platform and a voice. 
Um, in each of these cases, what you've seen is new ways of trying to influence beliefs that were effective for a while and then became somewhat less effective. Uh, and so really, I think what we, in order to understand what's going on right now, we need to not think we are now in an age where um, uh, people are trying to misinform us where previously they weren't, or where now we have false beliefs where previously we didn't. What we need to understand is what is it about the way that humans operate that allows us to be misinformed in the particular ways that we are on the internet and through social media. Um, and so one of the things that, that we emphasize in the book, and this is in some sense the, the big thesis of the book, uh, is that belief is an essentially social phenomenon. Most of what anyone believes, they've learned from someone else, right? So, you know, you believe in climate change. Well, you haven't run the models yourself. You haven't measured carbon dioxide levels yourself. I'm betting, I mean, speaking for myself anyway. No, no, precisely, I no yeah. Yeah, how to do that. Yeah. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't measure uh, carbon dioxide levels in, in the atmosphere. I couldn't measure mercury levels in fish. I, I just have no idea how to, to do this sort of thing. And so we rely on other people who do know how to do these things. Now, there's not one person who knows how to do all of these things, right? It's even scientists are relying on other scientists. They're relying on papers published in scientific journals and things that put out by the National Academy of Science and um, organizations like that uh, to get the information that they use to do their little part of the, the scientific process. And so what that means is one, it's you know what allows culture, what makes us able to do science at all, the fact that we can communicate our experiences, communicate experimental results, um, and learn from other people. But it also means that we can be uh, misled in novel ways that capitalize on the social nature of knowledge. And I think that what we're really seeing that's distinctive about the current period isn't that there is misinformation or, and isn't that um, we have false beliefs. It's that it's the distinctly social nature of knowledge that is being uh, somehow cannibalized in order to spread misinformation, sort of self-consciously used to create false beliefs and, and um, uh, allow them to persist. And really, the reason that can work is because of the massive democratization of information transfer, right? The fact that you can communicate with much larger, like any individual can communicate with much larger groups of people and that we have a tendency, we have, we've developed a culture online where we share information from sources that we trust and then we trust information that comes from people in our own social group, right? Our friends, our family, people whose political affiliations are similar to ours, which means that um, we end up sort of getting exposed to information coming from the sorts of sources that we think ought to be trustworthy, right? Like our friends, our family, but which has been generated by organizations that have very different interests from our friends and family sure. who have managed to capitalize on or somehow use the nature of these connections to, to spread their message. This week's episode is brought to you by Manscaped. 
who is number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. All right, listen up. I'm going to be honest. I manscape. I do it. I enjoy it. And in the past, I've hurt myself. Listen, I'm not too proud to say that I've nicked myself. I've done it. It's not fun. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their Lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. You can breathe easily now. And don't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your balls. That's just gross. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SMART at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job. Your balls will thank you. So if you're not too ashamed that you do manscaping, listen up. Get 20% off, free shipping, and a free travel bag with the code SMART at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping and a free travel bag at manscaped.com and use offer code SMART. That was a fun one. And now back to the episode. One of the things I'm curious about is all of this makes sense. I, I love how you take the, the social factors is really what compels us to have these certain beliefs. But isn't it easy to just say that although I'm influenced by friends and family, when it comes to any fairly big decisions, I should just ask myself, why do I believe this? And if the answer isn't because the best information available from the best sources have told me this, then don't take it as truth. Like, isn't it, it where, where am I flawed in that thinking of if I want to understand climate science, I need to take into effect or in, in, into my head, who, what are the dozen most prominent climate scientists saying? If I want to believe in vaccination, why don't I go to the organizations who study that? I, I'm not, again, I'm not saying I do this right. I'm just curious on why that's not the easy way out. Well, so, so first of all, I, I think that that is, uh, the right way out. Okay. So, um, you know, and it's not just what the, the 12 top climate scientists say, because that can be hard to, to sort out. It's what the IPCC says, right? The Intergovernment right. Panel on Climate Change. It's what the CDC says about, or the NIH says about um, vaccine safety. And do you think that uh, the U.S. government is somehow, I mean, there are these weird conspiracy theories about vaccines in the CDC. Well, what are they doing in the U.K.? What are they doing in Canada? What are they doing uh, in Japan? You know? <laughs> Go and, and, and see what the uh, independent review bodies that, uh, you know, of experts who have, have reviewed the entire available literature and have made a recommendation, what they recommend. That's where you're going to get the best and most reliable information. The issue is that uh, that's not how we had to go. That's not how what we had to do to go and get our information in the past. Mm. You know, so think about think about what. Um, uh, how you would make decisions. I mean, even, you know, when I was a, a, a kid, you know, if you wanted to know what kinds of cars were reliable, you didn't go and look at the uh, federal government uh, reports on uh, 
safety and, and fatality rates in different car manufacturers. You didn't go and look for peer-reviewed science to do this. You asked your uncle yeah. what car he would buy. Yeah. You asked your parents what kind of car they would buy. And now, the issue is that it's those same uncles who are saying, well, climate change isn't real. And so what we need to do is recognize, well, the sorts of things that we were doing before, like the sorts of heuristics of trust that we were applying before for where to get useful information, reliable information, just don't apply anymore. It seemingly sounds easy, but that's when we're talking about things such as climate science and vaccinations, et cetera. But it's it's just as much, if not more difficult when you're talking about those smaller pieces of information that although they're necessary, perhaps they're not as divisive or well studied. And I don't off the top of my head, I can't think of any uh, what those are, but I'm sure you've looked into this when you were studying all this. Was there a gap or a difference in the magnitude of the information or the magnitude of the um, visibility of a topic versus the, um, you know, the smaller everyday things that still have a big impact on our lives? I don't know of work that studies the question in exactly that way. Um, what I think uh, is pretty well supported, uh, uh, two things. One, that there are certain kinds of issues which, although extremely important, for various reasons, don't have immediate impact on us, right? So um, take something like, I mean, maybe the, the best example is uh, uh, evolution by natural selection, right? So this is something that's hugely controversial. Um, lots of people have different views about it. What you believe about evolution makes absolutely no difference to what you do on a day-to-day -day level, right? Like there's just no cost to being wrong about this or being confused about this. Now, climate change is something where in the very long run, there are gonna be costs to having been confused about this. Just like with tobacco smoking, there were costs about believing it wasn't that dangerous or that the science was, was still out there, was still out on this. Uh, but there aren't short-term costs to it. Uh, most of us can go on driving our cars, uh, you know, eating beef, I mean, whatever, whatever things that, you know, flying in planes, whatever things we do, that uh, uh, increase our carbon footprint without having any immediate feedback that, oh, this thing you're doing is having consequences that are bad for you or bad for the world. Now, that's gonna change over time. It's already changing in some parts of the country and some parts of the world, but the feedback still isn't immediate. It's not this action leads to this sort of effect. Um, vaccines for various reasons related to herd immunity have, have been similar to this, right? Where uh, although it's increasingly the case that we're hearing about outbreaks of previously eradicated diseases in certain communities that uh, have low vaccination rates. If you're the one kid who isn't vaccinated in a school full of kids who are vaccinated, you're safe because you're not exposed to any of these diseases. Um, and so I, I think that the immediacy of uh, the effects makes a difference and allows for things like national politics or, um, you know, other sorts of considerations that aren't really about, you know, the character of the evidence to end up dominating. Yeah. Um, well, oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say the other thing, though, is that you see misinformation campaigns even on small local issues, right? I mean, so um, my local, you know, city council in, in Irvine, California, um, 
there are these debates about things like where, uh, so there was a big debate about where the uh, veteran cemetery was going to be. And there were two groups that, you know, if you heard either of them talk about it, you would get the sense that, that the issues at stake were completely different from one another. Um, and there was no agreement on even basic facts. And you might think, well, this seems like a kind of small thing. But it turns out that from some point of view, it wasn't a very small thing because there was a, a big developer involved who very much wanted to develop one piece of land and another piece of land. And the veteran cemetery had to go wherever the developer wasn't going to go. Um, and so, you know, it's it's small. It's not highly visible in the you know national conversation, even the statewide conversation. And yet there were economic interests at stake. And the same set of methods got trotted out to try to influence public opinion. Right, right. And obviously they work. And I'm going to look into that book you were mentioning. I know we need to let you go here, but there's one question that kind of almost underlies everything and, and a big part of your book. And that's this idea that there's a lot of people that don't actually care if it's true, right? They'll defend something to the death without actually really ever looking past somebody's opinion. Why is that part of humanity? It's, it almost seems like if you're a believer in evolution, that that trait should have evolved out by this point. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, there are really interesting arguments that you can make here about the role that uh, belief plays in social signaling. So um, it's really important to us. I mean, this is something I think that we have evolved to uh, uh, to want. Right. We want to be members of communities We're we're social animals. And some of the ways in which membership, I mean, some of the ways in which we indicate that we're members of a community um, is by acting certain ways, dressing certain ways, engaging in certain sort of cultural practices, and in some cases, believing things or saying we believe things, right? That's, that's one way of saying I'm a part of this uh, group of people. And I think on many issues, it's what you're seeing is someone expressing something that has nothing to do with the facts that they seem to be talking about. What they're expressing is membership in a certain group of people or emotional reactions of a certain sort that you know, align them with certain other people that are for the, the benefit of certain other people, which you know, sort of makes, for these, makes these conversations that you think are about one thing really about something else mm. uh, in a very frustrating and, and, and difficult to, to counter way. And actually, as soon as you started going down that route, it makes sense, right? It's it's just as important for our survival that those around us like us, that we feel included, as it is to know if climate change is real. I mean, and that sounds ridiculous because climate change could obviously kill everyone, but probably not in the immediate future. Whereas if you get, you know, banished from the group, especially speaking, you know, historically, then you could meet your fate much sooner. And, and that's one of the things that I, I really enjoy about your book. That's why I think our listeners will absolutely love it is it's a combination of how we should think, why we should think a certain way, but how, it's the, the science behind it. It's studying it. And then it's really just a way of thinking, as you mentioned, the thing that science does to progress, to move in the right direction. We don't know everything right now. We never will. Um, actually, I think that's when we need to be most on guard is when we hear facts, when we hear things trotted out as 100 percent certainties. Um, and you uncover a lot of this 
in the book in much more depth than we're able to do in a, in a short, you know, 45, 50 minute conversation. That being said, um, the book is The Misinformation Age, uh, How False Beliefs Spread. I wanted to give you a minute. I mean, you have such a fascinating view on so many things. Are you out there writing? Are you publishing content for the world? Or are you kind of staying in academia and every now and again, you throw out one of these great books? I publish a book like once every two or three years. And, you know, that's going to going to keep on going. You know, I write for magazines sometimes. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I have uh, a, a lot of students I have to worry about. And, yeah. And, and they're, they're paying good money for you. So stick to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where where can we find you? Of course, we'll link to the book and it's, you know, all the places you buy books these days. But uh, where else are you? Are you active on social? Do you have your website? Uh, yeah, so my, my website is uh, jamesowenweatherall.com, uh, and I am not on Twitter. I can't stand Twitter, but Good for you, by the way. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> my co-author is, and so you can, uh, she's tweeting for the both of us. Um, you can you can find her um, on Twitter at Kaylin Meister, C-A-I-L-I-N-M-E-I-S-T-E-R. Awesome. Well, no, I commend your ability to stay off Twitter. It's not my thing. John, my my the co-founder of this show, he he loves it. And I think it's a necessary evil for a lot of things. And if you want the headspace that you need for this type of information, I think sometimes Twitter can crowd it out. Well, Jim, again, thank you so much for being on, for sharing all of this, for helping us move our thinking in the right direction. Uh, I really appreciate the time you've taken. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Episode 329 with Jim Weatherall is in the books. All right. You can pick up his book, The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread, anywhere where books are sold. Man, 329 episodes. I don't think about that often, but holy cow, that is a lot. Hopefully you all are enjoying the content. And if you are, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And if you want to support the show, you can head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and pledge a monthly amount that'll help us do some awesome things that we really want to get in the works. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or you can message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to sign up for the newsletter, you can always head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Hope you all enjoyed it. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up. So we will see you all next episode. <laughs>